Rob and Steve here for another riveting episode of the N64U podcast. Coming at you with high-end amateur reviews and scoring of all your favorite and unknown 60 N64 titles. Today in episode 7, we will be reviewing one of Nintendo's pop titles, Zelda Ocarina of Time. That's right, Stephen. Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Developed and published by Nintendo in 1998. And uh, we got a lot to talk about today. So, uh, Stephen, would you mind getting into the explanation of all of our categories for our beautiful listeners? Of course. Our categories first are mechanics. How is the game structured? Our second is gameplay. How the game plays through that existing structure. Third category is difficult. How difficult is the game and how does that difficulty progress throughout the game? Next, we have story, the design story that progresses throughout the entirety of the game. Then we have sound design, visual presentation, and finally, we have modern day appeal. How well does this whole game hold up today? How well does it play on its current format, uh, which is now currently available on the Switch? Thanks, Stephen. All right, well, I'll get into it. Ocarina of Time is an action-adventure game, and it's set in the kingdom of Hyrule. So basically... You're traversing these giant landscapes trying to solve quests and solve dungeon puzzles and and things of that nature. For this particular game, too, uh, they do follow some of that traditional Zelda uh, style of completing through those dungeons. You know, you collect one dungeon at a time, progress to the next level, get to go into a whole different section of a map. And it's the first time that they've actually taken that concept and reinvented it into this open world uh, environment. And, you know, I think mechanically it was very adventurous. Um, Being the first one that's really done it um, in this fashion and with one of their major titles was a very ambitious goal for Nintendo at the time. It's true. It, it, they, they managed to take the formula established and really perfected in a link to the past. And, create a 3d version of that game and i think uh obviously i'm a huge fan of the super nintendo and a lot of the times when you think of mega man or castlevania like a lot of these or earthworm jim like a lot of these great games that came out in the 16-bit era were reimagined as 3d games on n64 and they just paled in comparison but it What's really great about Ocarina of Time is they managed to move the 2D genre into the 3D realm and not have it, not only does it not uh, negate any of the quality, but it it improves it in almost every way. Another, Another thing that I found really interesting about speaking of how Ocarina of Time was basically takes a lot of the concepts of A Link to the Past and and created something new. They had, they've added a lot of good features that really make Ocarina of Time, from a mechanic standpoint, stand on its own. One of which is the time traveling mechanic. You know, you you start off as a kid, and you know, spoiler alert on a fifteen year old game, but you eventually do time travel to the future when you're an adult, seven years in the future, and there eventually becomes a dynamic where you you get to switch back and forth to solve certain puzzles and i thought that was done super well even even today i think it held up really well and it was really impressive to go back and see how well 
it was done for such an old game. You know, one fascinating part about that particular mechanic, you know, that allows you to travel between that seven-year period of, of being a kid and being an adult in this particular game, it, it it's such a fascinating mechanic because it almost, in a way, doubles the size of the map in which they're working in because... It basically allows the developers to recreate an entirely different map layered on top of their original map that you explored in the first three dungeons as a kid in this particular game. And it's it's an element that you really only saw in its predecessor game, A Link to the Past, and it's just done so expertly on the N64 that it really, really makes this game's game stand out. That's a good point, because it, it's kind of a, a really easy way to, like you said, almost double the amount of space that you're working with. Because, yeah, all the same places are there. You know, the Hyrule Town, Kakariko Village, it's all it's all there, but it's very different. And I just love the like, especially Hyrule Town, how brutal it is after you've traveled seven years in the future and everything's like Armageddon style, like, and you go to the village and everyone's just like huddled up there and being like, we were driven from our homes. Like it, it was done super well. And like you said, they, they did this in Link to the Past and it ended up being a, uh, a mechanic that was used in future Zelda games as well. Like I'm thinking of um, uh, the 3DS, A Link Between Worlds. They do the same thing where they have high rule and then low rule, which is basically the same idea of Link to the Past, where it's like a dark world and a, a light world. In a way, I believe that that mechanic almost has defined the Zelda game in general. You know, Link to the Past really was the first one that did it. And I think they knew what they had. I think Nintendo really knew what they had there initially because they've sort of like redone that concept so many times and really like ingrained the idea of time in every game that they have. Yeah, the Legend of Zelda series does a, a really good job at kind of holding on to these concepts and mechanics that really define the uh all the zelda games and i think that really builds a really strong relationship with the people who are fans of the game like i think of i think of the fact that you use an ocarina throughout the game a musical instrument to help you know, change the weather or teleport to locations that you've been. It's it's something, a concept that was used later in Wind Waker and used in Twilight Princess. And uh, I, th I think they do a great job at coming up with these really novel ideas and just find ways to continue implementing them and improving them in farther game, uh, future games. And you can kind of see how every single Zelda game, too, sort of builds off of itself in some sort of way, because even in terms of the concept of the Orc Arena, I mean, that date, the idea of that really dates back to the first Zelda game when they originally give you a flute to, like, travel from level to level, you know? They know that their maps are so big, so in order to keep the player interested to some degree, a inventive way to make them travel from important location to important location, I think, was very important, and I think it was critical to the success in this particular game because 
to some degree in the older Zelda games, though the maps always have always been large, it's a side, they were always some level of side scroller game. So in a way you're not going to get overwhelmingly lost. This was the first game that Nintendo really went out on a limb with within Zelda where they needed to create some sort of mechanism such as traveling with the Orc Arena in order to make it more playable and uh, more fun for the uh, average player getting into this game. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Imagine playing Ocarina Time and then running everywhere. It would the game would be half as good as it is today with just that one mechanic addition. Just getting to the Spirit Temple alone, it, it would be an impossible feat to do regularly, or at least a very discouraging feat to have to do regularly if you didn't have the ability to warp there instantly. I agree. It was it was a really really smart decision on their part. You know, uh, one more mechanic that I, I also think that is really important to this particular Zelda game is this is the first game for Zelda where it's not just you have at any given moment your sword to attack with and one other individual item. This is the first game where they've really let the player uh, mechanically have his sword available, his or her sword available. Um, to fight with in addition the ability to use instantly any one of three other items that you may have in hand you know up until this point every single zelda game lets you have the one sword that you could use with your b button and then your a button would have been you know maybe used a lamp or a boomerang but they were all able to be used only once at a time ocarina of time really is the first game in zelda's game line that allowed the player to have three items at, at a drop of a hat available to them for use. Now, a lot of this goes down to the design con of the controller with the N64, uh, with all of the four C options. But this is actually really, really functionally important when battling many bosses throughout the game, because you might need to scroll through one or two items to really attack a lot of enemies. And I think this is vitally important to the success of this game. Yeah. And especially when you start thinking about when, when you get into dungeons and you need to switch through your weapons or use multiple weapons, sometimes you have to use four different items to make it through a puzzle. And the ability to have all of them set to your C buttons is incredibly helpful because you know going through the menu and switching items is a bit slow and cumbersome and again it's it's a huge mechanic that really increased the quality of this game significantly i agree i think this one this one was vastly important to the success of this game and uh even in the first level, you see its use. Like you, you don't necessarily have to when attacking when attacking the first boss in the Deku Tree. Uh, you don't have to only use the Deku Nut. Um, you don't only have to use like the Deku Nut to attack it. You can use like the slingshot. So if you're playing that particular uh, level, you can keep both of those items readily available and switch between which one you'd rather use. Yeah, and it, it, it right, it gives you the ability to tackle the game as well, however you really want, because there's oftentimes more than one way to do a particular thing or kill a particular enemy or solve a, a puzzle. So it, it's it's nice to have that freedom with all the different items that they provide you. I actually think, and I don't know about you, Rob, but I actually think that leaves us into a great segue into the gameplay. Um 
the function of these weapons is essential to this gameplay in this this Zelda game. You know, every single section for each of these puzzles may require multiple items to get past them. And um, it really makes for interesting layered gameplay. And into Rob's point, um, there, there's almost like a level of customizability here, which to me, I know you guys who listen faithfully uh, know that's very important to me uh, for the entertainment value of a game. And I do like the fact that along with its open world, el- world elements, that there is this freedom in how you play the game as well. The only one of the complaints I have in terms of the items is they have all this great functionality to map items to the C buttons, but they don't allow you to map your winged boots or your uh, your heavy boots for the water temple. And the fact that every time you want to switch your boots on and off, you have to go into the menu and manually do it is a, a bit cumbersome. And I know they fixed this because I, I haven't played Twilight Princess in a while, but I'm almost positive that they allowed you to map the heavy boots to one of your uh, buttons so that you can quickly uh, pull, take them on and off if you need to. That had to have been a developmental limitation at the time, because even when you make those changes, you see the physical appearance of the character change. So I wonder if they couldn't let that occur in real time, developmentally speaking. So I wonder if they had to actually like require you to pause to make that change, because it does actually change the appearance of the character. So I wonder if that was too difficult um, to add in in a live uh, fashion at that time. Yeah, I'll I'll let it slide if there was some sort of technical limitation, because otherwise I think it was a major oversight. Oh, I I, I would agree. But with all the other revolutionary uh, items that this particular game brought to the table, I'm more than happy to forgive (laughs) them there. We'll let this one slide, Stephen. Another interesting factor with the gameplay here is the puzzle incorporation in, in this particular game. This game did a excellent job at supplementing all of their dungeons with very difficult, entertaining, and not overly lengthy puzzles. Um, I do think using a good balance of fighting villains and um, this element of of doing a more difficult puzzle really balances the gameplay quite well. Uh, You're not at any given point in time only overloaded with puzzles, so if you're looking to fight every now and then, you do have plenty of that with these puzzles. So I think that element of gameplay is is very important to the success of this game as well. Yeah, the 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 variety is is great and uh we'll we'll talk about it more i think in the difficulty section but they do a a great job at making puzzles that are very engaging and interesting and fun to do but not so difficult that you're pulling your hair out and I, i think that's really important when you're making these type of dungeon games you're gonna your game's gonna flop if you make puzzles that are not fun to do. I agree. It, it's such a it's such a tightrope to walk to make these type of uh, puzzle games because 
so many people, and myself included, as much as I like a difficult puzzle, if I fail consistently enough in a puzzle, that is something that would discourage me from a game. And I don't think that there is a whole lot of puzzles here that are so overwhelming they get you to walk away from the game. They even have some puzzles that have a time factor in them where it makes it sort of more difficult and interesting with the gameplay purely because you might have to put together a puzzle of a ghost in order to fight said ghost, but you have a minute timer to put this particular puzzle together, and it's not like they have you fail out, which other games may have done. This particular game, what they are able to do is when the timer runs out, they'll scramble the puzzle in live time for you to basically reattempt again, which is completely a completely interesting uh, element to these type of puzzles here. Um, and it almost keeps you from quitting out in the game because though you may have failed in that time frame, they just basically flip the puzzle and reset the clock instantaneously. And it sort of keeps you in until you beat it. Yeah, it, you, you bring up kind of an interesting point where I have kind of a, a dueling opinion on is how this game respects the player's time. And I think that that is a huge aspect of the success of any video game, either being made today or going back and playing a game that was, you know, came out in 1998. There is a lot that this game does, such as the ocarina allowing you to teleport to, different areas once you learn those particular songs there there's things like that that really help and uh, apona is a great example excellent example of something that something that allows you to get around because there's hyrule field is really really huge and just you you feel how huge it is at the beginning of the game before you get apona and you have to just roll your way through hyrule field to get anywhere so having having Epona to get around is really, uh, really helpful in that in that sense. But there are also ways in which the game doesn't always respect your time that I feel like I have to point out, such as the hands and the temples that grab you and drop you at the beginning of the dungeon that that is I understand you have to be careful. And I equally hate those things, too. Those those will really, really make you save and quit. Yeah, they I'll be so I'll be honest. I was playing on the switch. So whenever I got to a point where because every time that one of those types of creatures is around, Navi tells you. So at that point, I create a save state and I'm like, if I get pulled, I'm loading that save state. I'm not running back from the beginning of the dungeon. But one thing I'd like to interject here and make one point. I do think, though I agree with you and, and I hate that element of the game. If you put this game, not not in the Switch, but what you're ta- describing with the save state, I do think that developers were conscious of that being an issue in in discouraging their audience. And, and I think that's evident in some of these special items that you can ob- uh, obtain from the great fairy fountains. You know, uh, Pharaoh's Wind, it's, it's, it's a green magical spell that back in the day, if you were playing this on the N64, that you can go in any given room of a dungeon, cast that Pharaoh's Wind spell, and it 
acts as a pseudo save state for you. So let's say that hand does come into play and actually kidnap you and bring you back and you've casted that spell. You can uh, cast that magic spell one more time and it will drop you off back in um, that original room that you were taken out of. So though I agree it's a huge inconvenience, um, I do think they were conscious of that inconvenience and tried to provide you with some ways to counter it. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, it, it they definitely were conscious of it in in that sense, um, and and you know at the end of the day, those things are really easy to avoid if you're just careful. Like there's there's no reason for you to get picked up by it as long as you're not just standing still in the same spot after you're told not to. <laughs> I, I I often wonder if if the concept of this hand uh where it brings you back to the beginning of the dungeon i wonder if this i i can't recall and i wonder if this concept sort of died with ocarina of time because if you watch if you play any zelda game ocarina of time and prior this hand villain has always been an enemy in pretty much any dungeon up until ocarina of time and i wonder if with the growth of this 3d open world environment if they sort of have eliminated it because I can't really think of any Zelda game I've played since that has this enemy. Yeah, I don't remember either. It's been a while since I've played Wind Waker or Twilight Princess, so I I can't recall. It's it's interesting because it was definitely one of the more iconic enemies I think um, up until that point, at least. You know, some some speaking of dungeons, another thing that I found interesting, especially speaking of how Ocarina of Time was a game that kind of built on Link to the Past. It didn't have, you know, like if you're in Link to the Past, you would eventually unlock like the different teleport pads. Like there's the blue. I think they did this in Link to the Past where they have like a blue pad and a red pad that allow you to uh, like as you get deeper into the dungeon, you're able to teleport back to the beginning of the dungeon. Were those in Link to the Past? (sighs) No, you could never in Link to the Past. There was nothing that let you teleport back to the beginning. They had... Uh, warp squares that might bring you into a different element of certain dungeons, but there was no mechanism that brought you back to the beginning of a castle automatically. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of... I I just played Minish Cap, and they do that, where basically once you get further into the dungeon, there's a blue pad that will take... Like, usually get the blue pad around the time you get the dungeon's item, and then it teleports you back to the beginning of the dungeon, and then eventually when you find the boss room, there's a red a red pad that brings you back to the beginning. So it allows you say if you die or turn off the game uh, that allows you to turn the game back on and you know, you're going to start right at the beginning of the dungeon, but it gives you a pad that allows you to make your way back immediately deeper into the dungeon, as opposed to just having to manually walk there. Something like that would have been really nice for Ocarina of time. Just some of these, some of these dungeons were, you know, several hours long. And if you aren't able to do it all in one sitting, it'd be really nice to have a really quick way of being able to, you know, get, get back further into the dungeon where you left off. I I do agree. And in, in some of these dungeons, it does get a little bit, um, you get to a certain point and no return almost like it's like if you've committed this much time in this game, it's a little bit frustrating to save and quit or in this particular level, that's a little frustrating to save and quit and then have to restart in the middle of that level. I do find that in some levels that are best tackled in one sitting. And, um, 
I do think because a lot of these levels, there's a constant, pretty much all of these levels, there's a, there's a constant progression forward. There's only one level that I can really think of, think of objectively that has any element of the level where you have to sort of backtrack a little bit in the dungeon. Um, and that's the water temple in terms of just getting all the keys to get towards um, the boss in that particular map. Other than other than that one dungeon, every single level does sort of have a, pro- a constant progression forward, and it does make it a little bit easier, though time-consuming, to beat a, beat a dungeon in one sitting. I think if I were to point out a weak point here uh, for this game, it would be the fact that, yes, you, you do have to commit an hour or an hour and a half to beat this one level uh, rather than beating a level in, in sections that is much more common today. Yeah, you definitely want to, you can get away with playing a particular dungeon and and not doing it in one sitting. I, I probably half the dungeons I did in a couple sittings, but the, it, it speaks a lot to how the dungeons are designed in the sense that there are so many moving parts, like you're turn, you're, you're making really small accomplishments throughout your dungeon experience that are slightly maybe modifying the um, modifying the dungeon, like in the water temple or opening different doors and things like that, where if, if you walk away, you're almost doing yourself a disservice because you're just going to forget. You're so right there. It, it, it truthfully, if, if you do it in spurts, you're going to get confused and you're not going to know where you are and it's going to make the, the game that much harder. And probably you'll be more likely to walk away from playing this game. So know that when you play this, if you're going to get into a level, you're either all in or all out um, if you really want to enjoy it. Yeah, and and, and speaking of, of length, I, I, should also, uh, I should also mention that this game is a long game, and I, I think it's important to mention for those, uh, at least as far as games for the N64 go, uh, you're looking at a potential 30-hour game or even more if you're trying to get all the heart pieces and things like that you you're you're really uh, there's a lot of good bang for your buck here so if if you like longer games this is one of the only ones on the this might be the longest game on the N64 other than maybe like the ogre battle game so if you're looking for that bang for your buck you you found it here I wouldn't be shocked to see this being ranked as one of the one of the lengthiest games um, there. I, I'm a little bit uh, I'm a little bit desensitized with this one in terms of length because, and like I even said to Rob before we got into this particular game, like I could I could put a blindfold on and beat this particular game. So, like if you're new to it, I I would agree. I I think. It's sort of like, it's close to that 30 hour mark. Definitely one of the longest N64 games. Um, which is pretty impressive considering the time because it, this has got to blow out length of game by a lot, I imagine, for the majority of the N64 games. Yeah, there's, you know, Paper Mario is, is like a 20, 20 hour game. A lot of the other 3D action games like Banjo Kazooie are like 10, maybe 15. I think the Ogre, I've never played the Ogre Battle game, but I'm pretty sure that one's like a 50-hour commitment. Like, that one's a little bit... Because it's one of those um, turn-based strategy games that, you know, the battles themselves probably take forever. I played used to play Final Fantasy Tactics, and, and 
Uh, I think the one on the advanced, like sometimes battles would take like 15 minutes or more to, to complete. So, you know, it really adds to the, the length. Yeah. It's kind of what you have to understand going into it, that you're going to be putting in that kind of time commitment. Um, I got one more point uh, in gameplay in particular that I really would love to bring up is 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 the piece of heart element to this game. Um, I actually think the idea of being able to achieve additional hearts outside of the dungeon um, is one of the best elements of this particular game because I don't think they're um, overly obvious in terms of finding a lot of these. So it is quite difficult to be successful um in achieving a lot of these and it and it can take up a lot of your gameplay time um if you're someone like Rob who likes 100% a lot of the games this could this could add a significant uh amount of time to the game but overall it is worth it because it does reduce the difficulty for you in a lot of these game in a lot of these dungeons and uh even the Ganon battle um throughout the game as you play it it's it's great because the game rewards you for trying to take a little bit of time on the side to find these because a lot of the times you can see the heart you know you can see it in this hard to reach location and then you have to think to yourself how the hell am i going to to reach this heart and yeah if you're if you're impatient you can just blow through it and and uh just forget about it but at the end of the day, when you're fighting a boss and you're getting killed very quickly, then, you know, you're kind of putting yourself in that position. And, and overall, too, I think it like really encourages the player to explore the map and enjoy the um, the design th- that they put into the game. Um, because let's be honest, there's certain sections of Hyrule Field you really have no business going into unless you're looking for pieces of heart. And and so if you're willing to adventure, if you're willing to take a little more time, they really reward you um, in terms of gameplay by giving you more pieces of heart to um, help you take more hits in future battles. Agreed. Um, I have... I have probably I have a couple more points to make. Two good and two bad. Yeah, I, if we you know uh, we've done a lot of positive. I'd love to hear some bad. Okay, uh, well I got some bad for you, Steve. Hit me, hit me with the bad uh, first, always. <laughs> uh, so the first thing I'll say is, my goodness, the tech speed. How like games up to this point have had options for slow, medium, fast tech speed. Why in the world do I have to sit there and slowly wait? And I'm not even a fast reader. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm sitting there looking at my watch, waiting for the text to come so that I can move on. It really, like to me, is very frustrating. And I think that one of the reasons that I think that I would, I would take a little bit off of the modern appeal of this game is, is simply because... I'm very impatient when it comes to slow tech speed and there's no option here to speed it up. That does unnecessarily bog the game down because to be successful in this game, you do have to scour in certain sections. Like you do have to go up to a lot of strangers. You have to talk to them. Even if there's completely irrelevant information that they're giving you, you have to almost talk to five or six uh, villagers in any given section of the map to kind of piece together where you may need to go next if you're lost. So I would actually have to agree with Rob here. 
that text that text speed does pull away from uh, some of the gameplay and, and, and some of the modern day appeal for sure. Another thing are the aim controls when you're trying to when you're trying to like hit one of those bullseyes with your uh, with your bow and arrow like and you have there's like a particular dungeon that you have to do it with a timer and it's aiming with the control. The controller is just painful and they really improved this when um, I've, I was playing the wind waker and the twilight princess HD collections on the Wii U and they have the built in motion. It's not motion controls, but they have like a gyroscope or whatever that allows you to kind of tilt your controller so that you're able to move your, you know, any of your projectile weapons. So if you're trying to hit, a really uh, precise target, you can kind of just tilt your controller and uh, it, it helps in- improve your aiming accuracy and the ease of it all. Obviously, that type of technology wasn't around back in the N64, but for me, it's it's something that I noticed when playing is that it, it was a, a real limitation. So I do agree with you in how this is played on the Switch, that that is 100% true, and it makes it very difficult. And I actually think, you know, eventually when we get into the modern appeal category, I do think I'm going to speak a lot of it, a lot about how it relates on the Switch, because that is the most popular environment that it is in current day. But I would defend it a little bit in its original environment on the N64. And for that matter, even in the GameCube, because I don't know if anybody else really remembers, but for me, I played a lot of this on a re-release version, uh, the Master Quest edition on GameCube, so I do think the level of controller sensitivity on those older games was so different. It was not nearly as sensitive as you see on the Switch today, so though yes, it's a little bit of a pain in the ass, purely because I think at the time, like even if you were to play uh, the old first-person shooters of like a GoldenEye, the aiming is a little bit difficult, but I think it is more difficult on the Switch strictly due to the, the increased sensitivity on those controls. Because if you play this on the N64, it though it is still a problem, it's not as dramatically a problem as it is in the current um, system that you can play it on. Yeah, that that's a good point. I I didn't I did fire up my copy on the N64 just to look at any potential differences between the two to make sure that I wasn't misspeaking or complaining about things that were just being caused by the Switch. So I I, I admit I didn't look to see how much better or worse the aiming controls were, but there are certainly some some differences between the two. You know, but I think it, it in a way it's sort of the growth of this game is just so interesting. You know, this game has been re-released on so many systems at this point. It started off in the N64, re-released on GameCube, re-released again now on Switch. And just in terms of like how malleable this game has had to have been to still be successful, I think is impressive because it's overcome a lot of changes technologically speaking. Um, Though I do think the current format on the Switch does bring a a decent amount of limitations on its current day appeal, Um, I still think its design was was quite good for its gameplay. Yeah, and, and, and speaking of the different versions of the game there was also a, a handheld version released on the 3ds which i played a few I years did not back know that. and 
Yeah, they they put it out on the 3DS and they beefed up the they cleaned up the graphics a little bit and they added some quality of life features and I think also they added the motion aiming for uh, shooting your bow and arrow. So I I would say that uh, if you have a 3DS, the definitive edition in my mind is is that version. It surprises me that they didn't take more time on the Switch to really incorporate some of that, especially if they have a not entirely outdated uh, update being on the 3DS that I'm surprised they didn't try to you know, obviously there's some some sort of limitation that I'm unaware of, but it, it surprised me that they didn't take some of those upgrades and continue with it into the Switch version because um, the g- gameplay on the Switch just does feel different, like fundamentally feels different on the Switch than it does on N64 or even GameCube. Yeah, hopefully they... Uh, we'll get into it a little bit later, but, but hopefully they... Uh, with the Nintendo Switch Online stuff, they start implementing some better features in terms of making these games play better because, or at least as good as they played before. Because as it is right now, there are a lot of uh, limitations with, you know, your C buttons, for example, controller mapping and all of that. It th- There's so much room for improvement and it almost seems like they didn't bother to include any of that kind of stuff. All right, Rob. So you have two more positives. So what are you, what are your big po- last two positives in in gameplay here for Ocarina of Time? So the first one that I will say, which is probably the lesser of the two positives, but still one that I really thought should be mentioned, is the game makes use of a day and night cycle, and I thought that was super cool for the time because a lot of enemies like the uh, the skull skull tulas or however you say it, those things only come out at night. There are certain like the Poe ghosts come out at night, you know, th- things like that. And in the day is it's a completely different vibe. And it really it really adds. And, and this game does such a good job at creating like the spookiness factor, uh, especially when you're in the the adult Armageddon world. And, you know, when it's night, you can really like all these zombies are coming after you. You can hear the, the owls hooting, hooting. And uh, it, it adds another depth or another layer to the game. I think it adds a incredibly interesting layer, like for sure, because there really was no game at this point in time that had that type of feature. And I even think Nintendo really 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 loved that idea too and i think the proof of that is the whole design of their next game majora's mask is entirely based on that time cycle so i think they sort of stumbled into something huge here that they that was really brilliant at the time for that game and i actually think it really that idea really pushed the the, the zelda title uh, big time, especially in future consoles. So I think this was an incredibly important piece of gameplay uh, or a feature of the gameplay in Ocarina of Time. And it was it was done very well and it wasn't, they didn't go too far with it, you know? I think it was such a new concept. They kind of, you know, tested the water, waters with some simpler ideas and it worked. And it was, it was a brilliant uh, aspect to the gameplay. I agree. I think they went just far enough with it where it didn't create any negatives really for the game, only only positives. And 
it was definitely like you were saying, I, I can't think of another game from that era that that did this, which would make Ocarina Time again a game that is just choosing to innovate constantly. And and speaking of, that leads into my last point, and we didn't talk about it at all, I don't think. But this game was the first to use the Z-targeting system to lock on to enemies. Great feature. And Absolutely great feature. Yeah, it, it was hugely innovative and really greatly improved the way that you could... It improved the combat for these style of games, and it is wonky at times. I, I and because of you know camera angles that aren't always great. Uh, you know the camera angles are better in this game than a lot of other 3D games at the time. But camera angles and mixed with the Z targeting can sometimes be a little wonky. But it set up a huge innovative feature that was integrated in all future or many of the future Zelda games. And I'm thinking uh, kingdom hearts right now uses it. And that's another huge game, huge series. And it really improved combat and was a huge innovation for, for future games to come. It was, it was really essential to it being, I think it was pretty essential to the success of, of the fighting in that game because every game at the N64 in that time had so many camera problems, and I think it was just a um, an issue with the tech at that time. Like, you know, Mario 64, you have to manipulate the camera manually all the time. This was really the, sort of the first feature that allows you to freely manipulate the camera, but in some sort of automatic way uh, that's quick and can be done live in-game while fighting someone. A lot of these other games manipulating the camera while fighting someone makes fighting someone nearly impossible. This, you could be in the middle of fighting someone and then someone attacks you from behind, quickly Z-target, and it rotates the uh, the camera instantly for you. Yeah, the, yeah the, the problem really was that the a lot of the 3D games for the N64, they didn't... They, they wanted to give the user a lot of control over the camera you know especially when you're playing games that involve a lot of looking around and finding secret things they they opted to give a lot of control over the camera and what makes ocarina time really good is that and it makes and almost any game nowadays has a fixed camera that follows you the same way as you move throughout the game and there's still a lot of in ocarina time there's still a lot of uh, ability to change your camera angle around, but there's more fixed camera angles that make it a little less wonky. All right. I think that closes it out for us in terms of gameplay. Uh, tons of tons of talking points. We, we could talk all day to talk about how amazing the gameplay is here, but I think we really dialed in on some of the more important features that um, uh, were really successful here for this title. Uh, the next topic I really want to get into is difficulty. As the audience knows, this is an incredibly important uh, category for me. And um, I'm going to start off, Rob, and, and and get right into this. But I think this game, the difficulty of this game is is perfect. I cannot think of another game that I feel nails the difficulty and the progression of difficulty like this game does. Whether it be 
the overall game, like jumping from dungeon to dungeon, the increased difficulty and uh, increased puzzle difficulty that you see from dungeon to dungeon is huge. And they do a great way of sort of building, building difficulty through use of new items and uh, other functional things that you can do as you progress in the game. Like, you know, each level you're going to get one significant item that allows you to achieve um, a more difficult feat in the next level. And I really think that is like quintessential Zelda in a way. Um, and it's just done so artfully here, whether it be, and I think, I think you see this progression in difficulty most evident in its weapons. I think the hookshot and the longshot specifically really display this. Earlier on in the game, when you first get these, the hookshot, you are overcoming minorly difficult elements, but they are hard to accomplish these particular tasks purely because the weapon you are given at that time has limitations. So it's like later when you get the long shot, you are now able to tackle more difficult features and elements of the game because you purely because you progress further and unlocked uh, higher end items. So I think it's really, really interesting how they do that. And, and the slow build uh, allows for a lot of fun for me. Yeah. And, and to really look at the difficulty of this game from like a macro sense, it does what I can only hope any good game would do. And it has that nice steady grade of difficulty increase. It doesn't start off too hard. It's, it's, it's relatively simple, but it lets you know, it lets you learn how the game works. And then as the game progresses, the difficulty ramps up really well. You know, you might start this game and say, man, this, this game's pretty easy. And then you, as you start playing, you f you find that the dungeon design, it's it's just so incredibly creative. And honestly, if I were to pick one thing about this game that I think to be my favorite, it's the dungeon design and difficulty is like a shining aspect that holds up so well today. And you know, considering considering the game is eighty percent dungeon, it's uh, just it's just incredible, and I just had such a great time replaying these dungeons. That element to me that you've just described is what makes this game one of the greatest games of all time. You know, if you're writing the writing the history of video games, you cannot write that history without Zelda Ocarina of Time. And um, a lot of it has to do to me with the the way they so artfully progress the difficulty throughout this game. And another thing that it's the speaking of the difficulty is I, I really like how this game doesn't hold your hand like a lot of modern games. You know, back in the Super Nintendo and, and, and earlier, games were a lot more open-ended and you just kind of had to figure it out. And I really like that about games because nowadays, I mean, of course, there are games that are open-world, like Breath of the Wild, for example, where you can tackle the game kind of in a, a multitude of ways and the game's not really pushing you one way or the other. So that's starting to change a little bit more as that genre becomes more and more popular. But in Ocarina of Time, you, you really just like you finish a dungeon 
and you're just like waiting to be told what to do next and it just never happens and you just have to figure out where you go next and it makes things so satisfying when you finally figure them out. I do think it's an older gamer mentality, um, but I agree with you, Rob. Like I very much, I like the fact, I, I enjoy that there's no lead into what to do next, where it purely is. It's like, all right, go run around and talk to some people until you figure this out. And I, I do think that's just kind of how games have evolved, where they kind of spoon feed it to you a little bit more. And for me, I've always found that spoon fed uh, direction. Um completely uninteresting and fun. So I, I I love the fact that this game, like many Zelda games that came before it, and even, you know, they're going back in that direction now, like you said, with Breath of the Wild, of really no hand-holding and kind of um, uh, solo adventure where you really have to figure it out on your own. I think that is a vastly fun element to this style of game. And um, a lot would have been taken away if they sort of just told you where to go each 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 time you beat a dungeon. I agree. And I'd say for the most part, even though the game, I wouldn't say, is holding your hand, a lot of the time you can figure out what you need to do based on context from people that you talk to. The only time, I think the only thing that I could really point out, and maybe I, I missed something, but Din's Fire... That allows, you know, I the magical that spell weapon. that allows you. It's it's great, but I forgot to grab it in the. Uh, and that's the only spell that's like essential to to like completing the game. Yeah. And I forgot about it, to be honest. I hadn't played Ocarina in a while and I was trying to figure out how the hell to get into the shadow temple. I'm like, I was shooting them. I was trying to shoot them all with uh, like fire arrows. And I was like, this isn't this isn't total right. rookie move. And. Yeah, I, I know. I know. And I was like, oh, shit, I need Din's fire. And I'm like, where the hell is that thing? And, you know, it, it, the game never tells you that you need it. Obviously, you walk by the boulders when you're going to uh, the uh, Hyrule Castle for the first time. And you're like, OK, well, I got to come back here. But I just never remembered to do that. It is a little misleading, though, and I can actually understand your confusion there with that, because all the other spells you get, like Pharaoh's Wind, there's no necessity to get it. The magic spells are the only three items that you are given in the entirety of this game. And I, well, okay. One other item being the ice arrow, but the ice arrow and these three magic spells, there's really no necessity to have these in order to complete the game. So making this one magic spell, the offbeat item that you actually need is a little misleading in my opinion. Yeah. And, and otherwise the game, what's important to remember when you're stuck in this game is that the game never asks you to do anything ridiculous like anything that you have to do in terms of say solving a puzzle in a dungeon it's it's easy when you get stuck to think of really outrageous creative ways in which you can try to solve the puzzle and it really never gets there it's always there's always something that that was just missed that that's a great point and i i actually think that kind of adds the progression like how this game just progresses in general it's like they make it almost blatantly obvious in the progression that you're missing something like like Din's fire that getting into the uh shadow temple really is a perfect example it's like you progress all the way to that point in time and it is so clear that you are missing a like uh short range fire item you know yeah it, it reminds me of uh when i was replaying the water temple i uh, I, I have not played this game as, as much as Steven, so I don't have the encyclop 
PD acknowledge that that he I, has. I really mean it. I could close my eyes and beat this game. And uh, even in terms of us chatting about this, it's uh, yeah, it's it's crazy the amount of times I've played this game. Yeah, I uh, can can I admit something to you, Stephen? Yes, please. I was not a Zelda fan through a majority of my childhood. I didn't play my first Zelda game, which I think was was Ocarina of Time, until college. That, like, hurts me on the inside. Like, this game series was my childhood. When I think of video games, I think of Zelda first. Honestly, if this series did not exist, I think I would not nearly be interested in gaming at all. Um, I think this is the one that has sort of, like, hooked me as a as a gamer since I was a kid. Yeah, and basically, <laughs> so I first played, I think I played Ocarina Time for the first time on my 3DS and I was playing it and I was like, oh my God, this game is, is amazing. I, this is what I've been missing out on. It's almost a bummer that you started there in a way to me, like seeing it, it's an original form playing that was like, oh, it's like, it takes me back. Like when you see it, like on its original design. Yeah. And, and I've gone back and played it. I've beaten it on the N64 and I played it on the switch. And honestly, what ended up happening was I ended up getting violent, violently into Zelda in college. And I was like, well, I have to now make up for lost time. And I now have played almost every single Zelda game at least one or two times. And I, I think what I ended up doing was all the time that I would have spent in my childhood playing Zelda. I just crammed into like the last uh, 10 years of my life. <laughs> It's that's saying something if this game is the one like it, it, I think that statement alone speaks to how big of a deal this game was, because I mean, you played this game, you loved it and it spurred you to play the whole series. And I love hearing stories like that because I actually think that this game is that important um, to Nintendo and video games as a whole. Um, I myself have not, as much as I am a massive Zelda fan, I've actually not played every single Zelda out there. I've, I've, I've played and beaten every single game on a, uh, at home console. Uh, it's, it's, it's the, uh, handhelds that have sort of, I've missed throughout the years, but, um, it's just, it, it's a, it's a series that you just, uh, you can't get enough of, you know? Um, the last thing I would, I think I really have to say about, the, the difficulty is, and it's not really a negative per se, but the bosses are pretty darn easy. Like almost all of them are pretty easy compared to how difficult the dungeons can be. Like you go through the, uh, the spirit temple and you're at the end and you're like, all right, I got this big showdown. And then the, generally the bosses, at least to me, seem to be like, once you figured out their, uh, their weakness, it, you just kind of repeat the weakness, the, the same move over and over again until they're dead. And it, it seemed like the boss fights of anything difficulty wise were kind of phoned in, though. I don't think they were the hardest, uh, the hardest thing ever to complete a, a lot of these bosses. I think I, I still think they were fun in terms of you're not going to necessarily beat all of them uh, right away in one life. You know, there's there's plenty of bosses that, like, you're going to need the fairies in a bottle to get you through for sure. Um, but I do think they sort of followed that traditional formula, uh, whether it be, I don't think this, and I don't think this is a, 
Zelda specific formula, but like a lot of games at that time, you know, sort of had hit the boss three times with like a multi-layered complex shot in order to beat them. And I do think Ocarina of Time sort of fits that bill. You know, a lot of these bosses, I, I don't know if there's a direct count and how many times you have to hit all of them, but like, like I think like when I'm thinking of this, I'm thinking specifically of the Fire Temple Dragon, you know, at the end of the day, it takes a little bit to kill him, but it's generally pretty easy because it's pretty formulaic in terms of three to five hits kills him. So it wasn't the most difficult thing in the world, but I still think uh, they weren't all immediately um, easy. Yeah, the, I, that was actually one of my favorite boss fights because that was one of the hardest ones for me was that fire, fire dragon because it took me forever to figure out how to... Uh, how to exploit his weakness. And, and I should say that I am in no way slagging on the bosses because I thought they were designed really cool. And we'll talk about that in visual presentation, I think, but the, the way that the actual boss fights were designed, I think were really cool. And especially when, like you said, that classic formula for the time, think of Mario 64 and even your final boss fight with Bowser and you're just grabbing him by the tail and spinning him into uh, explosives. You know, it's, it's really, that is really uh, limited. But in Ocarina Time, they're designed, even if they are repetitive, they're a huge step up from what anything else was doing at the time. And I want to make sure that that that's clear. I, I do think that the boss fights are pretty easy for the most part. You know, even the final boss fight was it was harder for sure. But, um, at, at the end of the day, uh, the bosses are pretty easy, but I think they were amazingly well-designed for the time. I would, I would say it's a, pr it's a pretty fair depiction. And, and, and I do think the, the fact that they're not overwhelmingly difficult definitely speaks to that, like how you fought bosses on that system at that point in time. But, um, I do think, yeah, I do. I do think that they were, they were high, very high end, you know, and, like specifically the Ganon battle near the end, or the I'm gonna say Ganondorf battle before he becomes Ganon. Like the lightning Spoiler bolts. alert. <laughs> like the lightning bolt element of that. I'm like how you fight that. It's very repetitive and it's obvious what you need to do. But sometimes it's just inevitable that he's gonna do a spread lightning attack and eventually hit you. So you do have to sort of play it correctly. Um to get through it, because you'll definitely die from time to time fighting these guys. Yeah, if if you don't if you don't exploit the weakness and play it exactly right, because when he's charging up to do that like uh that big lightning attack that you like can't avoid, you just have to shoot him with an arrow to like interrupt him. And if you don't do that, he's going to fucking hit you and it's going to it's going to hurt. So it, it, the game really punishes you for not playing it the way that you're supposed to be. But I, had, I I hate to admit how bad I was at those at the timing of those. Like I would I would get hit way more often after volleying it back and forth like five or six times. I would get hit and I was like, ugh. I, I have no one to be mad at but myself. Uh, now, Rob, I need I need to check and make sure you did this properly. Did you volley with the giant's knife or did you volley with the master sword, dude? Uh, I use the master sword, so I'm guessing I did it wrong. Oh, that's why the the key to that game and quickness of that volley is the giant's knife. The way you beat that game, you giant's knife for the volley, 
Then once you knock him down to his knee, you run over with the hover boots, pause the game, switch back to the Master Sword, and then strike Ganon. Gotcha. That is the optimal way to attack that particular portion of the end, end boss battle. Oh, yes. Thank you, Sensei. Thank you. <laughs> I'm almost like a little offended that you didn't do that well, uh, on this uh, playthrough. Well, so I think that this last playthrough was the first time that I ever got the giant's knife. Oh my god, like I'm like insulted hearing that. <laughs> well, uh I uh I, I don't know what to tell you, Steve. I I got it this this past time and I went swinging it around and then it broke and then I was like this thing is bullshit. I'm never using it again. That's that that oh was my, my god. experience like, with the the giant knife. Oh. I like my insides are turning hearing hearing uh that you gave up on the giant's knife based off of that. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna, I was gonna give you some crap and say, oh, I couldn't beat the time challenge to get the giant. Oh knife. no, I, I got, I got it, and then it broke, and I was like, this is bullshit. I don't even care, and just, and, and left it. Oh, so, so brutal. <laughs> well, it sounds like I have to replay it now, or maybe I can just uh, go get it fixed and and go fight the uh, Ganon battle over again, just to confirm that it's, it's the way. It, it's it's actually kind of funny though, but it, like, as much as I hate the fact that you did it that way, it does show that you really can beat the game however the hell you want. Like, if you don't want the giant's knife, you don't have to get it. Though I think you're foolish, you don't have to get it. So what makes it easier? Is just because it's longer? Like what? Exact exactly. You have way more time to actually hit it, and it's way less likely to hit you because basically, when you're fighting with the master sword, it almost handcuffs you because you have such a short reach. Gotcha. So you can like. Like for like two to three seconds prior with the giant's knife actually hit it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, that's 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 great to know, Stephen. I I uh, I think the way that you berated me was completely reasonable. We're not gonna. Uh, you're not gonna play my favorite game of all time. Incorrect. I'm not gonna stand for it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna have to go back and and retry it. You know, I encourage you, just play it over again. You know, you probably should be beating it the correct way anyway. I'm just going to be doing it in tears as I think about how you berated me in a uh, public domain. <laughs> That's the best way to do it. That's true. The shame the shame really hits uh, tenfold. Trust me, our listeners know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get death threats now. Thanks a lot, Steve. I'm gonna, Anytime, buddy. I'm going to get my, like, uh, my Zelda card revoked. Honestly, I almost did right then and there, just hearing the fact that you used the Master Sword. That's why I asked, because when you described how much difficulty you were having with that, I was like, you're totally doing it wrong. <laughs> well, there you go. Another example of how the game sets you up for success. It's just up to you to uh, meet it halfway, I guess. All right. So, uh, Rob, our next topic is story. Um you know, I took the lead on difficulty. I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts initially on how you felt about Ocarina of Time's story. The story, I think, as far as an N64 game goes and a game in general at that time was was really great. Um, it, it's not Shakespeare, as someone on Reddit put it. It cracked me up when they when they said that. But it was a really well executed story for the time and one of the best, if not the best on the console. Uh, it, it 
it basically, <laughs> this cracked me up when I, when I was playing it because the whole beginning part of the game is basically just based on Zelda's hunch that Ganondorf looks like a bad dude. She's like, this guy looks like kind of an asshole. So, uh, yeah, we gotta, we gotta get rid of this guy. <laughs> you can't deny that intuition right there. <laughs> Yeah, so she sends you on the quest to find three spiritual stones, and that allows you to eventually access the Temple of Time, which brings you into the future where Ganondorf has basically plunged the world into darkness. Technically, you could put that on Zelda's shoulders. <laughs> yeah, or what are you saying? Like, we could have just left She alone. caused you to plunge society into darkness. Oh, yeah, that's true. I I'm willing to place the blame on her. Uh, yeah, but so basically you, you find your way into the future and then you have to uh, restore the sages so that you can have a chance to uh, combat Ganondorf. And I, I would say, uh, long story short, that's, that's the, the overarching gist of what, the, what this game is here. And, you know, it, it, it's definitely that classic Zelda story, like, front to back. And I, I agree with the comments. It's not exactly Shakespeare. Though it's an excellent story... Uh, and it's it's done incredibly well. It's really, at least in my view, no different in terms of Zelda story than any other really Zelda story that came before it. You know, you're you're working with you're working with Princess Zelda. You know, sort of to overcome uh, Ganon or one of his cronies that are basically taking over Hyrule. Um, in order to capture the power of the Triforce. So, overwhelmingly, not a different story, but probably executed at its highest form, in my view. I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, it, it has a lot of the elements of previous Zelda titles, but it fleshes things out a little bit better. It really gets into the history of the Triforce, which I thought was really cool. And, uh, at the end of the day, all the pieces were just executed, uh, to perfection, I would say. It's the first Zelda story that truly brought Zelda lore as like an important thing. Uh, this is really the first time you start seeing people talk about like, oh my God, how did we get here? Um, and I actually believe too, that this is the first, uh, Zelda story that sort of encourage the idea of a Zelda timeline between each Zelda game that is, is, has been put out there. You know, up until this point in time, you know, they sort of made games that related a little bit to each other, but were all slightly different. And I think this is the first one that drew a new audience that really wondered, how are these connected to one another? Exactly. And, and that makes perfect sense, considering when you look at the Zelda timeline, Ocarina of Time is the branch. You know, it starts off with Skyward Sword, then Minish Cap, and then it makes it to Ocarina of Time. And at that point, it branches off in three different paths that are basically like, I don't know, like a multiversal or a dimensional kind of reality based on the outcome of Ocarina of Time. And I think that's truthfully the power of the story here and why for me, like, I give this story here in this particular game, though it's not overly complex, I give this score a perfect score in this particular category because I really do think this is what this is the story that made the overall Zelda story important to people. Yeah, and, and just like so many other aspects of this game, it set the bar 
to what a Zelda game should be and how the story should be told. And yeah, a lot of the games to follow have implemented a lot of the ideas that were laid by the foundation of this game. And it just goes to show you like the, the legend of Zelda is the word legend is just perfect here because throughout the series, there are so many different uh, car- incarnations of Zelda and Link and Ganon. And it, it really creates this like real, this big feeling of importance and this like legend and lore aspect of the series. I completely agree too. And, and this is a little bit of a side note, but like at the time it came out, there was still a lot of production of, uh, paper materials or magazine materials. Uh, I believe Nintendo power was still a pretty prevalent, uh, magazine at the time. And, and, and everybody was so obsessed with how this story, uh, affected the the idea of Zelda that you really really just saw it grow exponentially after this game and they did set the bar so high that critically it took years before Zelda could match the story of this game though I may personally disagree and I I think there's plenty of uh jackpot Zelda games after this one I don't think they really matched it story for story until Skyward Sword came on the Wii so many years later I, I agree completely. It it was it's just it's amazing how how a game from 1998 continued and continues to uh, inspire not only uh, Zelda games, but other games that uh, have borrowed from the formula like Dark Souls is a is a really popular example. The guy has come out many times saying that, you know, without ocarina of time dark souls wouldn't exist that's such a a a positive statement to to say about this and you know uh, and the fact that people that design games hold this one in this story in such high regard says everything you need to know about this this particular game story couldn't agree more i think for me um that's about all we can really say about the story and i think it's perfect time to get into visual presentation let's do it um so visually this game was excellent for what it was at the time. You know, they had such a large map to deal with that it was impressive to see how they were able to differentiate visually each section of the map. You know, you get a desert in one section, you get a, uh, water lake section in another area you get a mountainous range you get in everything that you really uh that can come at you environmentally speaking and i think they executed quite well uh visually each of these areas and additionally they also because of the time traveling mechanic they were able to reinvent each of these areas and how they looked into a different uh feel and, and visually so uh it's most starkly seen when you're doing Zoro's Domain. You know, originally as a kid, it's this beautiful, gorgeous water environment. And then you go back as an adult and it's this frozen, like, wasteland, even inside of um, Zora's kingdom, you know? So, visually, I thought it was done very impressively for its time. Um, you know, obviously, it isn't going to hold up to what you see today, uh, but they really nailed it, environmentally speaking, uh, of the visuals that you see in this game. 
Yeah, I agree. All, all the classic environments are accounted for and they're pulled off phenomenally. And I, I said this earlier in the episode, but the sheer scale of Ocarina of Time's world is just amazing. It It's mind-blowing how they were they were able to create such an expansive world and to your point steve it's it's incredibly impressive that they once you travel to the future you you get used to this world when you're a kid right you go to all the different areas like zora's domain or the or death mountain and then when you go back to this like apocalypse world you revisit all of these areas and now death mountain is uh, like a, basically an active volcano and, and you have to deal with, with, uh, you know, falling rocks and all those things. And, and it, they did just such a good job at visually pulling off those types of, uh, aspects of the game. Now, uh, another component that they did an excellent job with visually, I think were the enemies. The enemy design was very unique and creative throughout. You know, they didn't overly repurpose enemies visually, you know, and some of the a lot of the predecessor Zelda games, you know, it's just a different color of the same enemy that shows that the difficulty has increased. Now, with the upgrades in capabilities, developmentally speaking, you know, they can have a much larger variety of enemies. And I actually think they did a really good job at always bringing different uh, stylistically, style, or they did a great job of bringing in different styles of enemies, and they were all unique to their environment, and they were visually very appealing. Yeah, I, it's unbelievable the the variety and the creativity behind the monster and boss designs. Like, there's up to that point that other than maybe other Zelda games, you know, Link to the Past, for example, they there weren't really games that had such such a level of not just creativity but the breadth of the quantity of different monsters that you encounter you know they could have easily just done a lot of reskins a lot of games did that there's not really any of that here it's it's all uh rarely do they repurpose anything other than maybe like the re-dead zombies, which are honestly super awesome and terrifying. Uh, they did a, a really great job in this aspect. I agree. And, you know, you, you talked earlier, too, about specifically the boss design. I actually think that was one of my favorite elements of, of, of this game in terms of the visuals. I actually think so many of the bosses were really creatively designed. Um, you saw all different types of enemy bosses um each utilizing their environment that they're in like you have the fire dragon you know then you have like basically like a water i don't even know what you call the water temple's boss but like a water blob amiibo <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know i don't know what you want to call that thing but like how they pulled it off so different for each each villain was very cool and, and I don't snub the Shadow Temple boss either, too, because it was a really interesting element to have your first, like, in, invisible boss, so to speak, where you have to actually use an item you collect to really beat the boss. And, and visually, that was very stunning. Um, one thing visually that I really appreciated was, and I think this this maybe is not something that everyone agrees with, but 
like in Hyrule Town, for example, they use the pre-rendered images for the backgrounds as opposed to using polygonal uh, uh, buildings and things like that. Um, I know. loved that. I absolutely thought that was such a great idea. And, you know, I, I don't think, you know, in today's environment, that might not be the popular consensus. But I, I just I thought it was such a creative idea. I think it I think it aged better than the polygonal stuff. Personally, it did it, age better. Um, the, the the polygonal stuff is good and all. And, and they they tackle it very well in this game. But I think the 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 pre-rendered towns I, I think serves very serves the game well and, and makes it age a little bit better than uh a lot of the other games from the era. I I think it fits very much in line of like, you know, not being too adventurous in certain things has lended to better aging over time. Uh visually, I think that seems to happen a lot with a lot of N64 games. I agree. Now our next category is sound design. Rob, why don't you kick us off with that? Oh, what what do you even say about the soundtrack? I'm just like tearing up thinking about how great it is. Uh, it's it's one of the best video game soundtracks of all time. Never mind the the N64. They took a lot of those like classic the the classic Zelda vibe and really like perfected it in this game for the first time. And uh. You know, to this day, people are still referencing this soundtrack and listening to the soundtrack and citing it as uh, inspiration and is just generally considered to be one of the greats. The depth of the music on this game is so impressive, having been done on a 64-bit system. And it really, like this game's sound design really launched the idea of, you know, putting out an album from a game. Now, I can't speak to a ton of games other than Zelda that has done this, but Zelda has done this time and time again. It's like this, 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 this was definitely a soundtrack you were able to get back in the day. Then you see later games coming out with their own soundtrack and they even have like a Zelda orchestra that'll play like modern day Zelda music. And, and I really think it's credited all the way back to this particular game and how impressive it was. And for me, the amount of variety of music in here was, was equally as impressive. Yeah. They, they have, they do a really good job at having these like really, melodic instantly recognizable tracks but at the same time when you're in a dungeon there's not really much of that it's all very atmospheric music that's supposed to create like a feeling within you and they do a really good job at kind of switching between the type of tracks like the the track uh like gerudo the gerudo valley theme which is so iconic yeah and it's like the most sexually charged video game track of all time. And uh, then you have, you get walk into the spirit temple and you get a little bit more of the atmospheric type of type of vibe. So they, they really like, it, it was obvious to me playing this game that they put so much thought and found so much importance in the way that music interfaced with the game itself. I agree, because really, the music differentiates every element of where you are in the map. And 
talk about that more mystic vibe of the spirit temple, it like really sets the tone of how you're going to play a particular map. You know, you have the shadow temple that has this dark, ominous, you know, graveyardy style of music. You have Spirit Temple, that mystical type of sound. You have Gerudo Valley, which I agree, it is uh, an incredible track alone. And it has such a good, like, horse riding vibe. Like, when I think of that track in particular, I think of, like, riding a pony through Gerudo Valley or jumping the bridge. And, you know, they just did such a wonderful job of really incorporating the sound into the environment, and I think this was the first game that ever did it, and definitely was the first game that ever did it to this scale. Yeah, and speaking of Gerudo Valley theme, uh, I don't know if you ever listened to the, I think I sent you a link to the Super Guitar Bros. They're like a, a guitar duo, and they cover a bunch of different video game songs. I have heard that. They they actually do the entire Ocarina of Time, or at least a lot of the tracks from the Ocarina of Time soundtrack and their cover of Gerudo Valley is just like I, I could listen to it all day on repeat. Another song that really came out of that too was the uh Saria song from The Lost Woods. Like that's another one. That one that song I've heard remixed so many times over the years. It's it's crazy that that song is still relevant today. Oh yeah. Yeah I've heard like a, a dubstep remix of it. That's awesome. Oh yeah definitely big it was big in that like house electric uh era. Yeah. And speaking of how important the music is to this game, uh, we we touched on this earlier, but music is literally a required aspect of this game when you think of the Ocarina of Time. Like when you're using the Ocarina, it's literally integrated into the gameplay, a, a musical instrument where you have to play a variety of songs to uh, accomplish a variety of tasks like teleporting or changing the time of day or you know activating a switch or something like that that is true it is it, it, it's interesting too that they actually did implement it into the physical gameplay too and i like how as you're playing the songs they give you an actual like uh music um where it plays the notes on you um it really was just so iconic, like like playing the song and seeing that. Like I've even seen T-shirts made with the C buttons um, for like Song of Storms, where it's like the uh, left C, down C arrow, and then like A and then up. I've seen like people have that like on a music uh, note as a T-shirt. So it's crazy that like that element of like incorporating the music actually has really had such a lasting effect on people. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. With sound design as well, one other thing that I do want to note is the actual actionable sound items that occur in this particular game. You know, everyone knows who's ever played a Zelda game, the sound of, hey, Navi saying, hey, um, <laughs> using sounds like that to draw attention to the player for them to get uh, relatively important information is, is a really un unique way to go about it. Um, yeah. Now, now, obviously, there's, an, there's a point of annoyance for some people, but overwhelmingly, I think this is a massive uh, positive uh, sound element. A lot of people knock Navi, and I get it, but I think the one thing that would have really helped would be if Navi has given you a piece of advice that it just happens like one to three times or something like that. Because the problem is 
you're like every time you Z target onto something, you hear the, Hey, Hey. And then it's the same piece of advice that you've already been given. That's the, I think that people would have given Navi a lot less of a hard time if she just wasn't so repetitive about giving the same advice over and over again. Cause oftentimes she has something really good and useful to say, especially when you're, uh, trying to figure out what to do next, she can like gently guide you in the right direction. It's an incredibly fair point. Um, I definitely, I definitely think, yeah, that that is where the annoyance comes from directly, and 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 it is too bad. You're right because it is it, there is such valuable information in tor- in sort of how you progress uh, in the game by utilizing her, and purely because they're annoyed, people shut her out. Right, and and in terms of how the music kind of interacts with you and, and the game itself, the, I really loved this, the music that plays when there's an enemy nearby, like it creates this like really tense feeling and like a sense of urgency that I thought was done really well. Yeah. It's, it's almost like a spidey sense in terms of how they, uh, how they use the, 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 how they change the music one enemies are around. So I think that was, that was a great feature of the game. Definitely. Now I think it's time to go into our last category, which is modern appeal. And for me, speaking of this, I am going to speak a little bit of playability today, specifically on the switch console, you know, because this game is as popular as it is, and it has been re not reinvented, but it's been uh, re-released on so many different platforms that speaking to it in its most available current day form, I think, has a lot of value. And I do think I I, I tried for the first time ever playing this on the Switch uh, in preparation of this uh, podcast, and. I do have a little bias here in terms of the amount of times I have played this game. I've probably beaten this game 20 plus times on the N64 and probably an equal amount of times on the GameCube. And um, playing it on the Switch was the first time I've ever played this game and actually found true difficulty in enjoying the game simply in 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 how they uh, release the game. You know... This game we we mentioned earlier is built on on the mechan one of its most important mechanisms being the use of multiple items at once. Playing it on the Switch environment today, they do sort of take that away from you in terms of easily using those items by making them features of the second joystick. It that action is a crime. It almost <laughs> ruins the entire ability for me to play that game purely because of the sensitivity of the joystick and inability to uh, immediately differentiate which item you're going to be using. You know, I found myself constantly trying to hit the right directional and then I would use whatever I have listed as my up C option. Um I found this to be such a drawback that it actually lended me to uh, replaying this game back on the N64. Yeah, it, I I stuck it out and I played the whole game on the Switch. And yeah, my God, playing using the right analog stick as your C buttons, especially when you're trying to play the ocarina and play a song and then having accidentally pressing the wrong direction was very... Like I had to look, I had to physically look down at 
my controller when I was doing songs so that I made sure I wasn't going to accidentally press a unintentional direction. This honestly, um, truthfully really really bothers me uh that nintendo released this game in this manner on this system because i love this game so much and i think this game is vastly important to um this series and video games as a whole that to not take this into account and basically producing an experience that is way less superior than its original format and putting it out there for a new generation. Kids picking up this game today are going to functionally just purely by how the buttons are laid out, enjoy it way less. And I think that's really, it's really, it's really too bad because I want to see that next generation have that same type of love for this game as I do. And I think how Nintendo chose to release it with this controller issue almost ruins the ability to play it on the Switch. Like, I I actively stopped playing it and went back to its original form. Um, So... it, it really hurt in its in its modern day appeal. Um, And a lot of it has to do with how it was how it's been re-released. Yeah, Basically, what I ended up doing to overcome this was they they also mapped the C buttons, uh, left C to X and up C to Y. So I would map the two items that I was going to use the most, so, which usually was like my bow and arrow and my long shot or hook shot. I'd have those mapped to X and Y. So at least I had a button that I could easily press to use them. And then the third item mapped to right C, I would have something like the lens of truth or something that I didn't need to, uh, have a lot of accuracy with. Um, and and that, that did seem to help a little bit, but it doesn't help the ocarina songs in any way. It's, um, it's interesting with like changing the, changing the mapping of the buttons like that. Um, it's almost like you mapped it similarly to how it was released on the GameCube. And um, even in terms of how you used it, it's exactly how I would have used it on the GameCube. Back in the day on the GameCube, um, it was basically you could use two of the C buttons for Y and X on the GameCube controller. And then the third C option was that C stick that existed on the GameCube controller. So basically it allows you to have three items, but in reality you only wanted the two more actionable items listed on the C and uh, on the Y and X button. And then again, the lens of truth or like for me, I did a lot of Deku sticks on that like one C button that was purely controller use only. So you can kind of attempt to recreate that like you did on some of the older systems, but still, um, not having a more fluid way to get this done on the switch in the current day environment is, is, is a crime. Yeah. I, it definitely is playable. You you just definitely have to approach it from, I think the way that I did where you map your useful items to X and Y, well, you don't map them, but that, that's some, that's a feature that would be very useful for not just this game, but all N64. It's kind of surprising to me that this doesn't exist yet, but uh, it's still definitely playable if it's the only way that you can play it and you're opposed to emulation. Uh, it's definitely doable, but it's going to come with come at a cost. I'm truthfully surprised that Nintendo did not take more care um, 
in how they laid out the buttons for this particular title. You know, we've raved about this 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 title for the entirety of this episode, and this is honestly, for me, as close to a perfect score I would ever give any game that we're going to do. And the fact that they didn't give this game any real additional thought in how they were releasing it on this console, it's, 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 it's a real oversight. If there's uh, any, any benefit that I could, I could give, though, is this game, along with any other game on the Switch Online, uh, it looks way better. Unless you have like an HDMI modded uh, N64, the the Switch looks beautiful. And I, and I can attest, I went back and I have my N64 hooked up with a RetroTINK upscaler and it still, it, it it couldn't even hold a candle to how good it looked on the Switch. So that that's that's one benefit of if anything is anything that you're playing on the switch online is going to look really nice same with banjo kazooie they just put that up and i went to go play it and and my god it's like almost night and day in terms of the the visual quality that i will give i will give nintendo that benefit uh there and seeing that they did at least some visual improvements is 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 nice um to me there's no reason why these games can't be the perfect version of versions of themselves on this system. So the visual upgrades are quite nice. It just all comes down to the fact that the N64 has, I think it's called anti-aliasing and things like that, that uh, makes them look really good on CRTs. But when, when it comes to hooking up to your HDMI console, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't look as good. It doesn't translate as well. Now, I know I bash Nintendo pretty good for this, uh, this in terms of modern day appeal, <laughs> but I, them right. I, I think so. Honestly, like this game is the great is one of the greatest video games of all time. And it really had a massive effect on everything that came after it, that it, 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 it they do deserve to get bashed for how they released this on the switch. But with that being said, the actual game itself and how we have described it, this is as good as any open world game you play today, and I would never discourage anyone from playing it. I, I hope that the younger generation finds this game and, and loves it as much as we have, um, because I still think it is such a fun game to play today. Yeah, I, I think obviously this game, it was incredibly innovating, set the bar for all like future Zelda games and action adventure games and inspired countless games to to follow it you know received tons of awards left a permanent mark in video game history the only thing that i would say is you know obviously this game is critically acclaimed and everyone is is you know it's got the 99 out of 100 on metacritic the only thing to keep in mind is if you've never played this game and you're going to play it is to temper your expectations this game although is great and holds up really well it is a 15 year old game and come with that it comes its limitations so uh i, I would keep that in that in mind that you know if you're trying this for the first time i totally agree and with that um i think it's time we can probably give our final scores for this particular game and uh i'm gonna i'm gonna lead in on this one rob and for this game uh as you can imagine, and I mentioned moments ago that this was the highest game I've ever ranked since we've been doing this podcast. And with the exception of the modern day appeal category, 
Uh, I actually gave every single category other than that a perfect five out of five um, because I really do think at the time and, you know, even now, all those elements hold up as some of the best uh features any one game has has put out there um and i only knocked them on modern day appeal purely because of how they've translated it to current systems so my overall score for this game i come in at a 4.7 out of 5 rob what'd you come in with steve you only wanted to go first because you copied my score always (laughs) it's just uh... so much easier to talk first when we have the same things to say (laughs) um Yeah, so I also gave this game a 4.7. I I also knocked it a little bit on the modern day appeal and uh, also the fact that, you know, the Z targeting can be a little bit wonky and the camera angles aren't always great and uh, some of the quality of life stuff like slow text speed and all of that um, uh, had me dock the the gameplay just a little bit. But yeah, 4.7 out of 5 for me. Awesome. And with that, we've reached the end of another episode of the N64U podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please like us on Facebook via our N64U, a retro gaming podcast page, or follow us on Instagram for all of our latest updates and announcements. Don't forget to subscribe and rate slash review us on your favorite podcasting app, which will keep you up to date on our latest episodes and help us reach more lovely people such as yourself. And if you have any questions or comments, please shoot us an email at n64upodcast at gmail.com and we'll read it out on the show. This is Rob and Steve signing off from your home for all things N64 here at the N64U Podcast. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I'm going to get death threats now. Thanks a lot, Steve. Anytime, buddy.